Well, yesterday, as you all know, was Halloween, October 31st. But that day also marks another holiday of sorts, Reformation Day. Almost 500 years ago, Martin Luther publicly declared a series of protests against the unbiblical and corrupt Roman Catholic Church, and this event sparked the Protestant Reformation. So along these lines, last week I started off by telling you the story of two martyrs from the Protestant Reformation, and I want to finish that story this morning. These two men were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, who were both burnt at the stake for their beliefs in the true gospel and their refusal to recant from their criticisms of the Catholic Church, primarily regarding their view of communion. These two men were killed in Oxford, and so they're known as the Oxford Martyrs. But there's a third Oxford martyr who goes with them, and his name is Thomas Cranmer. And so today we're pretty much doing a follow-up sermon, a part two to last week's message, so I figured what better time to tell you about his story than now. Now, Thomas Cranmer was the leading figure behind the English Reformation, the formation of the Church of England, which formally broke away from the Catholic Church under the reign of King Henry VIII. King Henry made Cranmer the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the top position in the Church of England. It's like their pope, except there's nothing Catholic about Cranmer. He worked hard to remove all vestiges of the Catholic religion from England, instead just going back to what the Bible taught alone. But the English Reformation was set back when King Edward VI died and his half-sister Mary took over. And she was a staunch Catholic and she earned the name Bloody Mary. because She was responsible for putting to death over 280 Protestants. We can guess what she thought of Cranmer. She had him arrested for heresy and along with Ridley and Latimer sent to Oxford for execution. Cranmer, though, was not killed on that day with Ridley and Latimer, which I told you about last time. He was made to stand trial before a Roman Catholic court, and they desperately were trying to make him recant, because he was the main guy. He was in prison for a long time. He was treated harshly. He was 69 years old, but he stood fast. However, eventually, they changed tactics Instead of punishing and depriving Cranmer, they started to treat him with every luxury. They gave him nice living quarters. They fed him well. They just gave him everything he wanted. They promised him that he would regain his position of archbishop if he would recant. And this caught Cranmer off guard. He was softened by these luxuries and tempted by these offers. And eventually they brought documents for Cranmer to sign. The first document, it it said nothing. It said nothing wrong. It's very simple. So he signed it. But this made it easier to sign the next document, which he did, and the next, and the next. And each time they inserted little phrases of compromise into these documents. And finally they brought before Cranmer a recantation document. That's the one they really wanted him to sign. And by this time, he was in the habit of signing what was brought before him, and he was a broken-down man. So he signed it. He signed off that there was no salvation outside the Catholic Church. He acknowledged the Pope as the head of the Church, and he fully affirmed all Catholic views, including their beliefs about communion. The Catholics finally got what they wanted out of Cranmer, and he thought he was going to live But Queen Mary hated him so much that she was going to put him to death anyway. But he didn't know this. 
Well, the day of his secret execution came, and they staged a large gathering at St. Mary's Church in Oxford. The place was filled with rejoicing Catholics and grieving Protestants, and they gathered to hear him publicly give that recantation. That's what they're going to make him do before they secretly went off to kill him, was to recant in front of the big crowd. However, Cranmer's conscience had been killing him the moment he, since the moment he signed that paper. A love of life and a fear of death led him to compromise, like Peter before the cross. But he knew it was wrong. He had fallen in a moment of weakness. But in the end, he couldn't deny his master. So when he got up in front of that church, they gave him one last chance to speak in front of all. Instead, he publicly recanted his recantation. He confessed his weakness that out of a fear of death, he had signed with his hand, contrary to what his heart believed, but he couldn't go on. And then he said this, quote, And inasmuch as my hand has offended and written contrary to my heart, my hand shall first be punished. For when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. End quote. Cranmer had obviously figured out at this point that he was going to die anyway. But like Samson, the Lord gave him one last moment of strength, and in his death, he ended up doing more damage to the Catholic Church than in his life. The crowd was shocked and amazed. The bishops were outraged because their victory had turned into a humiliating defeat. Cranmer was pulled away and taken to the same place where Ridley and Latimer were burnt at the stake five months before this. As he was tied to the stake, they tried to get him to recant again, but this time his faith was like granite. He met the death he so feared with a steadfast determination. And as the fires flamed up around him, as he promised, he stretched out his right arm and put his hand into the fire without flinching. And he just said over and over, this unworthy right hand. And he met the death he so feared for the sake of the Lord, And then he met the Lord. Well, when you hear of these tragic and heartbreaking stories of these martyrs, it makes you wonder why. Why this happened? What did they do that was so bad to deserve this? Well, it's so amazing that in the case of Ridley and Latimer and Cranmer, that they were killed largely all over their view of the Lord's Supper. That's it. Because they had a different belief about communion. Catholic doctrine states that during the Mass that the bread and the wine, they are literally transformed into the physical body and blood of Jesus, which are then re-sacrificed for sins, and you gain merit by obtaining them. But the Oxford martyrs and and Protestants today totally deny this, rightly so. But you think, what's the big deal? I mean, does it really matter how you view a little piece of bread, a little cup of wine that we Christians do every now and then? Is this such a big deal? But it, it does matter when you realize just how tied in communion is to the gospel itself. Understand, the Catholic view, it's just part and parcel with their false gospel. They espouse a salvation by works, that through religious deeds of merit, chiefly the Mass and Eucharist, you can outweigh your sins. You can make up for all the bad things you do, just keep doing these things and you can make up for your sins. But that is a false gospel. You know, we are saved by works. 
Not our works, though. Only Christ's work on the cross can save us. Our works can do nothing. But it's only Christ's finished work on the cross that can pay for our sins. And we access that once-for-all sacrifice through faith. And so we, in turn, are saved by faith alone. And the Oxford martyrs could not deny this true gospel. And if we, as we've been discovering, this gospel, it's completely tied into what Jesus was instituting with the Lord's Supper. It's a truth not worth killing over, but it is worth dying over. And it strikes at the very heart of the gospel itself. And today we come back to Mark 14, and we're resuming this study we began on the Lord's Supper to get it right. And if you want to take your Bibles, you can open there now to Mark chapter 14. This is Christ's last night, last meal, before he's killed the next morning. But in that upper room, Jesus was transforming this meal to introduce God's new covenant ministry. He was doing something new. And he was using some bread and some wine to signify what that was. What he did with the bread and the cup, which in turn relate to his life and his death, are tied into the gospel itself, to the good news of salvation. And so we, we, we have to get this right. We need to understand what Jesus was teaching with this ordinance for the church, because in it we find the message of salvation. So that's been our goal, starting last week. We've been trying to rightly understand what's the meaning of the bread and the cup, which he says are his body and his blood. What, what does that mean? What does that signify? What are we to remember and as we participate in this ourselves? Many questions need answering, and it's our goal to, to answer them. The passage itself is short and sweet, and you know it well. Mark 14, let's read verses 22 through 26, just to bring you back up to speed. Mark 14, starting verse 22. They're in that upper room, and it says, While they were eating, he took some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, Take, this is my body, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There he goes to Gethsemane, he prays, he's arrested. You know the rest. Well, last week we covered the bread. We spent all of our time just trying to figure out the bread. So technically point number one was understanding the bread. This is one case where if you missed it, I really want you to go on our website or CDs in the back and get last week's sermon because this is such an important topic understanding the bread. I'll give you the very short version of the recap because we can't spend too much time, but we start off by finding that in short, no, Jesus was not being literal when he said, this is my body. While he's holding up that piece of bread, the bread did not literally transform into his physical flesh in in any way. He's rather being symbolic, giving them an object lesson, much like when he said, I am the door. He's teaching through a metaphor something about his life. And the bread is symbolic of his body, that is, his life. From here we studied God's use of bread as a metaphor for life in Scripture. You have, for example, you know, God feeding the Jews manna, bread, from heaven. Showing them he is their life, he's their source of life. That's true physically, and that's also true spiritually. It's what he's trying to get them to see. The same goes for Jesus. We watched as Jesus took a few pieces of bread. And he broke them and multiplied them and he fed thousands. 
And what was he showing? What was he signifying? The same thing. He was displaying to all that he is their source of life. He is that manna come down from heaven. He is the one who can give them life. He is the bread of life. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. It goes like this. Bread is our life. Jesus is our bread. Jesus is our life. And his body, his life was given over for you. He would give his life so that you could live. He would go to death so that you would not have to die. This is the good news, and that you receive it by faith. To receive the life that he gives, this eternal life, you have to then eat him. He's the bread, you have to eat it. Which itself, of course, is a metaphor for believing in him. You must believe in him. John 6, 47 and 48, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. And then he said again, I am the bread of life. And what does this have to do with the Lord's Supper? Well, everything. It's another object lesson. Jesus hands them that piece of bread and he tells them to eat it. And as they eat, as you eat, you're confessing that you believe. You believe that Jesus is the bread of life. You believe he came down from heaven. You believe he gave his body unto death so that you could live. And you believe he's the only one who can give life to the world. And as you take and eat By faith, you are remembering, you are confessing your own faith in the bread of life. And by that we live. You take, you eat, you believe, you live. Well, again, if you weren't here, go get the long version of that, the sermon from last week. Now we have to move on. Our goal today is a part two, spending all of our time now with the cup. Equally deserving our attention is the cup. So technically, point number two, Understanding the cup. Last week, understanding the bread. Now we have to move on and do the cup. Understanding the cup. And here we come again to verse 23. So let's let's read it again. Verse 23. After the bread it says, And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And we'll stop there. Jesus and the disciples are gathered for Passover in the upper room, that that last supper. Jewish tradition at the time had already evolved this meal into what's still known as a Passover Seder. It's a very scripted meal, has all this symbolism that is supposed to remind the Jews of how God delivered them from Egypt. And of note in the Seder meal are four cups of wine that are drunk throughout the evening. The third cup of wine was drunk after the meal itself, after that lamb was eaten, that Passover lamb. The host would would get up, take the cup, he'd pronounce a blessing over it, and then drink it. And that's what Jesus seems to be doing here in verse 23. Luke tells us that this was after the meal. And so what we find is what Jesus does in verse 23 with the cup is actually quite ordinary. Same with the bread last week, verse 23, what he does with the cup would have been done by every Jewish head of household that Passover. So verse 23, when he had taken a cup, given thanks, he gave it to them, they all drank from it. So far, there's nothing out of the ordinary there. That would have been done in every house that Passover. 
But as before, as with the bread, it's not so much what Jesus does, it's what he says. Because what he says next with his speech, he goes off the script. He's taking the Passover meal with his with its existing significance and symbolism. And he next, he totally redefines it and he infuses it with a new meaning. And that's where we get to verse 24, which is the kicker. This is out of the ordinary. After that, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And this is definitely something no Jew would ever say let alone that Passover. And remember, Jews had a huge aversion to blood. God forbid them from drinking blood. In fact, they were required to drain the blood out of every animal, every meat they ate, all the meat they ate. So the last thing they would ever suggest is to drink a cup of blood. When Jesus said that, it would have been totally shocking to their Jewish sensitivities. And also, what does he mean? What is he saying by likening this cup of wine to his blood? And then what's this business about the covenant? Well, what's he talking about? Again, we're faced with these very serious, fundamental questions, and if you don't answer them right, you're going to get it wrong. You're going to get the Lord's Supper wrong, as many have throughout the ages. So we need to dive in here and, and do some more study to find this and figure this out. Now, start off with this. Much like last week, just get it out of the way. Jesus is not, again, being literal. With the cup of wine, we labored this point last week. I'm not going to do that again, but it, uh, hopefully it's, it's obvious to you. The blood, or rather the wine, did not magically transform into his blood right then and there. He did not secretly drain some blood into the cup. This is not literal. There is no presence of the literal blood of Jesus in the cup in any way. It's never taught anywhere in Scripture. We'll leave it at that. But as with the bread, Jesus is using the cup as an object lesson. He's developing this metaphor to teach something about his person or his work. And so now it's incumbent on us to figure out what that is. What is he trying to teach through this symbol of the cup? And it's not enough just to come up with something that sounds good. That, that doesn't cut it. You can't just make this stuff up. We need to now search the scripture, the wider context of scripture, to find out what was Jesus himself intending with this cup and the symbols that he gives. Well, for this, a good place to start is back with that first Passover. Last time we learned that bread is used throughout Scripture as a symbol for life. And the same thing goes with blood. Blood is used as a symbol for life. Except that blood is more than a symbol. I mean, blood really is our life. We need blood to live. But the metaphor Jesus gives, if you look closely, it's not just about blood. It's about blood that's poured out. So if blood is our life, blood that is spilt, that is death. A metaphor for death. We've mentioned several times already the origins of that first Passover. The last plague that God sent on Egypt was the death of the firstborn. And all the land. The sons of Israel could be spared and redeemed if they would take a lamb, this what would become the Passover lamb, and slaughter it, and put the blood of that lamb on their doorposts. And that blood would be a sign to the angel of the Lord who would then see it and pass over that house, thereby redeeming that son of Israel. They would be redeemed by the blood of that lamb. It's a life 
for a life. That's what it takes. That's always what it takes. A life given for a life saved. Well, with that last plague, Pharaoh, as you know, finally let the people go. He said, just you know, get out. So they left Egypt. God had delivered his people. But God wasn't done. He had to further set them apart. So after the Exodus, God brought the people to Mount Sinai. And he assembled all the people before them. And God was going to make his special presence known on that mountain. He was going to, in a way, descend on that mountain before the people. There, God entered into a covenant with the people. What's a covenant? A covenant is an oath-bound promise. It's a binding agreement. The solemn pledge to bless another, to serve another. And what was God pledging to Israel on that mountain? To be their God, to bless them, to give them this land. As you recall, God visited Mount Sinai before all the people. And through Moses, he gave them his Ten Commandments and many other laws. But do you remember how the people responded when, so to speak, God showed up? They were terrified. Why? Because they realized when God showed up, so to speak, that they didn't belong anywhere near that mountain. That is, anywhere near God's presence. The holiness and the majesty of God immediately convicted them of their own unholiness and sin. They said to Moses, let not God speak to us or we will die. They recognized their unworthiness to stand before such a God. And and you know what? They were right. They were not worthy to be near the majesty of God. They were not worthy to be close to his holiness. They were not worthy of his blessing. The only thing they were worthy of is his wrath because they were sinful. But still, God set his love upon this people. And he also provided a way by which they could come a little closer. They could come near him. This is where we get to the sacrificial system. God prescribed for them offerings. These offerings would cover their sins, which separated them from God. And with this cover, they could could come a little closer. They could come to God. But for these offerings, what was required? Blood. Blood was required. A life had to be given. A life for a life. That's how it is. You sinned. By sinning, you deserve death. The wages of sin is death. You've offended the perfect holiness of God and you have to be separated. It's eternal death, a separation from God. You don't belong. But your sins can be covered if you give a substitute sacrifice. A life exchanged for your life. And in this regard, the blood of the animal, the life of the animal was treated as therefore holy. Meaning set apart to God. The life of the animal wasn't being taken so much as given to God. And that's actually why God forbid the Jews from drinking the blood. It doesn't belong to you. You're giving that to God. Like Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is, by, for rather, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. It's amazing how true this this is. Blood is truly fundamental to the function of 
every one of our cells in our body. I mean, if you don't have blood, you, you die. Your individual cells, if they don't get the food and the oxygen that blood delivers, the cells die, and then you die. I mean, you can't live without blood, and you need a lot of it. You know, you have 20 to 30 trillion blood cells racing around you right now, and that 2 to 3 million blood cells are made in your bone marrow every second. Each day, blood travels 300 miles in your body, around you, and passes through your heart 14,000 times. In more ways than one, and actually in more ways that were more profound than the ancient Jews even realized, this verse is true. I mean, blood is our life. You, you, you don't live without it. Your cells don't even live without it. So what better way to represent the life of the animal than its blood? And you can't eat the blood. It's not yours. You're not taking its life. You're giving it to God in exchange for your own. The animal's life is given to cover your sin, thereby allowing you to stand before God. This is the gracious provision God was making for the people, a way to cover up their sins so that they could be near him, that they could be his people. This God provision through his covenant, this mosaic covenant, to spare his people from their sins. Now, speaking of that covenant, it's like, a, like an agreement, like a treaty. Treaties need to be signed. Do you remember how that, that covenant was signed? How it was sealed, how it was ratified? By blood. It required blood. Again, the people were assembled at Sinai. God gave his pledge to bless them. They gave their pledge to obey him. They entered in this covenant together. He would be their God. They would be his people. And this covenant was ratified with blood. As the people were assembled, Moses took the blood of a sacrifice Let me read Exodus 24, verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This covenant was a binding oath, a a promise, a treaty conditioned upon the people's obedience. If they would seek the Lord and obey the Lord, God would keep them in this land and bless them. And they agreed. They signed the dotted line to that agreement. Today, we use a pen for these types of signatures. Back then, God God required them to use blood. A life had to be given to seal this covenant, this agreement, to make it binding. And so with this, Israel entered into that special relationship with God. Now that all, that sounds good. But if you know your Old Testament history, you know things didn't work out so well for Israel. Why not? Well, the people, they just couldn't keep up their end of the bargain. They couldn't keep God's law that he had given. They couldn't perfectly obey. It's, it's impossible. And furthermore, you know, there's, there's just not enough bulls and goats and lambs to cover all their sins. I mean, if they really were sacrificing every time they sin, there's not enough animals to cover that much sin. And you have to realize that covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, actually did nothing to change the people. 
And we're sinners by nature. We have a fallen, corrupt heart given over to sin. And the Old Covenant, though, it actually did nothing to change the heart. God gave his law, like the Ten Commandments and many others. But you, you can't be saved by keeping the law. You can't keep the law. You don't keep it perfectly. You've already violated it. And the more law God gave, the more violations there were. We have a real internal problem. That's, that's the problem, a sin problem. And that's why we're cut off from God in the, in the first place. And the Old Covenant doesn't provide us the one thing we really need, which is a new heart. The Mosaic Covenant is actually designed in part to show that, to show the people just how far they fall short. It's meant to convict them of their need just for God's grace, which they could access. They could be saved by faith. Their sins could be forgiven by faith if they would cry out for mercy. Not trying to keep the law perfectly, but being broken by the law. But unfortunately, the Jews didn't get this. They missed the function of the law. They looked to it for their salvation. They thought, oh, just yeah, keep the law, you're, you're good. You mess up here and there, just offer your sacrifice, go through the motions. You're good to go, right? As long as I make my sacrifice, I'm good, right? Wrong. If you don't approach God by faith with a heart that truly seeks him, God doesn't care about your sacrifices. That's what God himself said, Israel and their hypocrisy. God said to them, Isaiah 1 verse 11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. It's not God going back on his word. It's just saying there's nothing magical about the blood of those offerings. God wanted the people's hearts. He wanted their lives given to him, not just the life of the animal. It does no good to give the animal's life, but then you go live how you want apart from God. He wants your life. That's that's the point. King David is one who, who got this right. Psalm 51, verse 16, he acknowledged to the Lord, Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you would not despise. God wants you to circumcise your heart, not your flesh. What matters to him is having a humble heart, broken over sin, given over to him by faith. That's the only way you can approach him, is just by that, by his grace, through your faith. That's the only person he will regard, someone who has a heart for him. But where do we get such a heart? Because our hearts are not naturally like that. Our hearts are fallen. They're in rebellion against God from birth. They, they hate God and they love sin. So where do you get a heart like this, that's humble and broken, that seeks the Lord by faith. Where does that heart come from? Well, the answer to that is also from God. God must provide even that. God knew that the people, they they couldn't keep his covenant unless he gave them new hearts. He knew they would never seek him unless they had new hearts. The law was meant to convict them of this, to drive them toward his grace, but in a continued show of love, God, he promised later on to finally give the people what they really needed. And that was new hearts. 
complete with his spirit guiding them and the assurance of full forgiveness. Just once for all, it's all gone, forgiven. And God promised such a blessing in a new covenant. A new covenant. Covenant of true salvation. Let me read for you. You don't have to turn. Jeremiah 31, 31. God said, Behold, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Another passage, God says more, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, he expands on this new covenant and he says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Although Old Testament saints could access God's forgiveness by faith, this was God formally showing the way to him for all. This is his unilateral oath to the masses to give his people what they lack, namely new birth. Otherwise, they would never seek him. How would God accomplish this, though? He's making some big promises. Total forgiveness? How is he going to do that? Because let's face it, people are guilty, vile, unclean. God just can't wave a wand and magically forgive you. That would be a violation of his own justice. It's like a murderer who is guilty. You can't just let him go free. That is unjust. God is perfectly just. So how can he do this? How can he just wipe your slate clean? If he's going to forgive you, it seems like you still need a sacrifice, a substitute sacrifice. And this time, if we're talking like complete forgiveness, a complete new heart, you're going to need a complete sacrifice. You're going to need a perfect sacrifice. Well, like the ram caught in the thicket in exchange for Isaac, God promises also to provide even this. God promises to provide this sacrifice. Elsewhere, God foretells of a once-for-all sacrifice. That's not an animal, but a man. A man would come, and he would die somehow for the sins of all the people. All, all at once. He'd be a servant, a suffering servant. You know where that's found. <clears throat> Isaiah 53. I'll again read it for you. Speaking of this servant, Isaiah 53, verse 4 says of him, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell on him. By his scourging we are healed. 
All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Look what's said of this person. He's pierced, he's crushed, he's scourged, he's like a lamb led to the slaughter. But he's not a lamb, he's a man. He's God's righteous servant who pours out his blood unto death. Why? To be the ultimate guilt offering. He gives his life being crushed by God, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of the many, to pay for the sins of the many. This is how God will do it. This is how he will deliver on that promise, that new covenant promise of forgiveness, total forgiveness. This is the means by which God will actually accomplish it. Through this servant, God will provide a perfect life in your place to pay for your sins. So we find throughout the Old Testament, this servant, he becomes a foundation for the new covenant. Now, I know we've been laboring the point in the Old Testament here, but we have to do this because this builds all the framework we need for now turning to the New Testament. And who do we find? Jesus. And it doesn't take long before you realize Jesus, he's the thread that ties all this Old Testament teaching together. Because as you turn the page and you get to Matthew, you start reading about Jesus, you find, who is he? He is the suffering servant. He's the one who will suffer and die. He will shed his blood to pay for our sins and to inaugurate God's new covenant. He is that once-for-all sacrifice. It's like John, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, what did he say? John 1.29, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is that lamb, that offering, that sacrifice. And his blood was spilt for you. He died in your place. And by virtue of his blood, God now can actually forgive you. It's like 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ is our Passover and he's been sacrificed. That's why he came. He had to give his blood, meaning his life, unto death. And now if that blood is found on the doorpost of your heart, so to speak, God will see that sign and he will pass over your sins. He'll forgive you. Mark 10.45, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Peter 2.24 says of Jesus, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Jesus is the one who will bring God's people back. He's the one who will finally make their hearts new through the new covenant which he forms. Just just keep humoring me. The book of Hebrews wraps us all up. So listen along. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Hebrews 9.22. It says, According to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. That's basically what you can gather from God's Old Testament law. God, he just can't forgive you. Either you pay for your own sins 
or you get a substitute sacrifice to pay for your sins. It's a life for life. But there's a problem with this. Hebrews 10.4. He says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Look, their blood, their life, it's not actually sufficient for you. All the blood of an animal can do is provisionally cover your sin by God's grace. But the life of an animal doesn't compare to the life of a human made in God's image. Their life doesn't suffice for you. So they can actually cleanse you. They can't make you perfect. It's like Hebrews 10.1 says. It says, For the law can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. All those animal sacrifices, they, they can't make you perfect. That's why they just kept over and over more and more sacrifices because they don't cut it. That's the point. They can cover your sin, but they're not actually paying for your sin. But God has a plan, a will, whereby he would provide that, that once for all perfect sacrifice. And Hebrews 10.10 10 spells it out for you. It says, speaking of God, but by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never Take away sins. But he, Jesus, having been offered, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God for by one offering. He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Once, one sacrifice offered for sin for all time. That's what God provided. And the sacrifice was His own son, Jesus. Jesus is the offering and it's his blood, his life given to death in exchange for you, a perfect substitute sacrifice. And that sacrifice enables you to now live life to the fullest, to be made alive. Hebrews 10 continues, verse 15 says, And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant of, that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So this is it. Jesus has come. The offering has been made, and now you don't need anything else. He did it all. He took all of our sins, past, present, future. He paid for them. His blood washed us clean. It's made us perfect. Actually able to make you perfect before God. Bringing us from death to life. New life. Eternal life. Now, finally, we can look back at Mark 14. And finish. I I know we spent all of our time studying background. That's obviously on purpose. Because you have to see this for yourselves. Jesus, he's not speaking in a vacuum in the upper room. His words are shaded and colored by all of this Old Testament background. And if you don't know it, you're not going to get what he says. But if you do know it, it's actually rather straightforward and simple to find out what he means. And now we can clearly see what he meant in that upper room. Mark 14, verse 23. He takes a cup of wine at Passover. He blesses it. 
And whereas the bread was used as an object lesson for his life, the cup is now used as an object lesson for his death. Because it's not just his blood, it's his blood that's poured out, he says, for many. And as the parallel says, for the forgiveness of sins. His blood, his life given over for you, the perfect sacrifice. And as he holds up that cup, especially in light of what's going to happen the next morning, namely being nailed to the cross, Jesus is saying, he's claiming that he is the suffering servant. He's saying, that's me. He is the Passover lamb. They just finished eating a Passover lamb. And he's saying, that's me. I'm, I'm the Passover lamb. His blood is going to be that once for all sacrifice. He will offer up his perfect life for them. And when he's done, they won't need another sacrifice again. They won't ever have to sacrifice another lamb, another Passover lamb, another offering ever again. When he's finished, it will be finished. There won't be any of God's wrath left because he's going to go to that cross the following day and he's going to take it all. And now, because of Jesus, you can count on God to actually deliver on all of those new covenant promises. A new heart, his spirit, total forgiveness, eternal life. Jesus was establishing his covenant that night. And the next day, as he literally shed his blood on the cross, he would be signing on the dotted line so to speak, because covenants have to be ratified with blood. And he would, he would sign that off with his own blood. A life for a life. That's what we require. Jesus gave his for us. Now we can relate this to our participation in the Lord's Supper. Remember, with the bread, as you take it and you eat, You are confessing your faith. As you eat, you're saying, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the bread of life. He's the source of eternal life. He came down from heaven. And by eating, by believing that is, you live. You receive that bread of eternal life. That sounds good. But what about our sin? What about our guilt? That's what separates us from God in the first place. That hasn't been dealt with. What do we do about that? That's where the cup comes in. That's the point of the cup. Because look, in reality, we don't, we don't deserve that bread of life. We don't deserve eternal life. We have sin. Our sin keeps us from eternal life. But in the cup, we have the reminder of what Jesus did for us so that we could receive that eternal life. So when you now take the cup, you are confessing yourself that Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. He did shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. He gave himself unto death so that you might inherit eternal life. And as you drink, now you are saying, you are confessing, I remember, I believe. You are appealing to his blood to wash me. You're saying, he's my savior. He's not just the savior, he is my savior. He did this for me and I avail by his blood. So do you believe this? Do, do you believe this? Well, then drink up and remember him, believe in him, confess him, and you receive your life back to you because it, really, it should be your blood that's being spilled for your own sins. But he shed his for you. And now hopefully you can see how this is 
so tied in to the heart of the gospel. I mean, what do you bring? How do you earn this? Nothing. You don't bring anything. You don't earn this. This is God's work accomplished by Jesus. He did it all. This once for all sacrifice. There's nothing you can bring. It's finished. You can't bring anything before God to earn his favor. And far be it from us to warp this Lord's Supper into another ritual where we re-sacrifice Jesus for sins and for merit. It's not what this is about. There's nothing we can bring. All God requires of you is your humility, your brokenness over your sin, such that you truly see Jesus for who he is and what he did, and that you just you cling to him. You, you take the blood, you drink it, you wash, you believe. You don't need to approach God with perfection. You can't. Even if you try, you aren't. This, this communion, it's not for those who are sinless and perfect. It's for those who acknowledge just how far from God they are, and they should be, because of their sin. But by their faith in Christ, He, that once for all sacrifice, makes them purpose or perfect. And as you drink, you're saying, I'm not righteous, but in Christ, I am. And you, and you live. Though we still fight and battle the flesh and the sin that remains, the Lord separates that needed reminder that our redemption is complete. It's over. We can be fully saved. In him, we really are forgiven. Our sins are truly gone. So drink, believe, remember, and live. As the hymn gets it right by saying, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this plan, your plan of redemption and salvation. So marvelous what you've done through the ages and in this redemption you've accomplished. Foreshadowed, highlighted in the old covenant, made real in the new covenant. And and who are we? We're no different than than beliefless Israel. We we are just as sinful, just as far gone. We are not worthy to stand before you, be it in Mount Sinai or just here in any day in heaven. We, we are not worthy. We too are sinners in heart, rebels against you. We fall so far short. But thanks be to God for your love and your indescribable gift of your Son, your own Son, God the Son, come down from heaven, not just to give life, but to give life by giving his life unto death. These are familiar words, familiar truths, but we need this reminder as often as we eat and drink, because this is how we live, this is how we please you. This is our everything. So we want to remember now our Savior who gave his life and his blood for us so that we might be clean before you forever. This is our worship, and we worship you now, Lord. Thank you. We give you our lives. In Christ's name, amen.